Good morning. Happy Independence Day to all of you. Praise God that we live in a country where we are free to worship the Lord as our consciences lead us. Uh, I recently spoke with uh, a woman who had immigrated here from Cambodia, and she was telling me all about her life there and what it is like and, uh, and then how much of a contrast it is being here. And she said that she was just commenting constantly how much opportunity there is here, how much freedom there is here compared to what she had in Cambodia uh, and so she was very, very thankful, and I just thought it was a very interesting uh, perspective that she shared coming from somebody who had no freedom to experiencing a large degree of it, especially in a day and age where our country is wrestling with, with even just the identity that we have and even struggling to celebrate the freedoms we have. And so I do think, I do believe we are to thank God for the freedoms we enjoy, even as we join with those who the original drafters of our Constitution uh, that in order to form a more perfect union, that we are seeking a more perfect union, a more fuller expression of freedom and equity. And so uh, I hope you have a wonderful day celebrating those freedoms. I hope you will, if you are just joining us or a visitor, that you'll consider staying after today. We have a church-wide picnic that uh, we'll have some games and we'll just really get to enjoy one another face to face outside in the beautiful creation on this beautiful campus that the Lord has for you. I want to issue you a little challenge, if I can. Uh, when you're here and you're mingling and talking, take some time to uh, introduce yourself to somebody you don't know very well and learn something new about them, right? So that's your challenge. If you stay, find somebody you don't know super well and try to learn something new. Tell me, tell me something about yourself I don't know, right? And, and that'll be a fun time, and you'll enjoy getting to know one another a little bit better. And with that, let's jump into the next three Beatitudes. The title of the sermon, this is part two to last week. Uh, part one, your blessed life now. Part two, all right? Your blessed life now. Part two. Last week... We saw the introduction to the Beatitudes, or from the Latin, if you ever wondered, this section is called the Beatitudes. It comes from the Latin beatus, which means happy or flourishing uh, or joyful or blissful. And so we, we heard this introduction, the Greek word being makarios, that's underneath each of those blessed, blessed, blessed. And, and we also saw that the, the translation in English, blessed, doesn't quite capture the full scope of that Greek word makarios and the full weight that it carries over from the Old Testament usage. Uh, and so uh, we, we examined all of that last week. I invite you to listen to it. Uh, we saw rather what Jesus is doing is he's offering a type of wisdom statement. He is inviting his hearers into the counterintuitive wisdom of the kingdom of God. He's, he's in, inviting them to embrace his kingdom and this counterintuitive wisdom and find true flourishing and in a state of being blessed by God. How can we find true happiness and true flourishing? Jesus invites us into this in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we covered the first one. And that's where it all begins. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That's where it all begins. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, actually. Uh, and we saw that with the Daniel references, the kingdom of heaven. So let's pray with that and jump into it. Father in heaven, I confess my heart is currently stirred this moment. My mind is distracted. And so I do ask for your special grace by your spirit. I ask that you would help me to focus that with singularity of heart and mind that I might proclaim your good word to your people. And Father, I do ask that in my weakness and in my uh, lack of clarity that your spirit would prevail, that your Holy Spirit would speak over and through your word to nourish your flock this morning. I pray, Father, against the schemes of the devil who as I'm reminded, lurks around your body at times with sheep coming, uh, or wolves coming in sheep's clothing. And so, uh, Lord, we are reminded that Satan is not inactive on Sunday mornings, but he is very active to, to snatch up the seed sown, to sow discord. And so we pray against his schemes, and we ask now, Father, that your Holy Spirit would help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. 
Uh, Lord, would you help us? And this we will do if you permit. We also want to lift up uh, our sister church, Lahaina Baptist Church, and Jay Wright and Joy Wright. We praise you for their ministry in the West Side. We thank you for the Malama Pregnancy Center that they help spearhead. And we do ask that you would bless the gospel proclamation out of Lahaina. We pray that you would build up their church in unity, that they would have unity of heart, mind, and soul, and that together, many on the West Side would hear the good news and so believe. And so, Lord, would you do this here? Would you do this everywhere that your word is faithfully proclaimed in Jesus' name? Amen. All right, here is your big idea this morning for these Beatitudes. It is a flavor of the last one. The morning, meek, and malnourished will ultimately flourish. The morning, the meek, and malnourished will ultimately flourish. Number one, we're just going to walk through each of your points are following the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, verse four. Blessed are those who mourn. And so we saw this translation given by a, a Matthean scholar last week. I'm going to read it again just for the pertinent verses, verses one through six, sorry, verses three through six, and I'm just going to read it for us so we can kind of hear it ringing on our ears. Here's what he said. Here's how he translated it. All he did is replace the word blessing with a word that captures more of how the original audience might have heard this, and here's what he put it as, flourishing are the poor in spirit because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Flourishing are the mourners, because they will be comforted. Flourishing are the humble, because they will inherit the world. Flourishing are the hungering and thirsting for righteousness, because they will be satisfied. And all he did is he substituted that word flourishing to capture that idea, to help carry over the tradition of Psalm 1 and wisdom literature. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. That famous psalm, that flourishing, he will be like a tree planted by streams of water. And so he's trying to carry that whole tradition, all that freight into that word so that we can see that God's meant for us, for humanity, that he designed, that he created to be happy under his flourishing rule and sovereign care in the beginning. And Jesus, the second Adam, invites us to follow him back into that state, to follow his leading as he brings us back to that state and indeed back to God himself. And so we started with number one, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's where it all starts. Once we come to the place where we are poor in spirit, where we have that broken and contrite heart, that leads to the next state of flourishing. Flourishing are those who mourn. From that lowly estate, we can actually see sin for what it really is. As we get up close and personal to it, we, we see sin and the pain it brings to others. We see the harm that sin wrecks on ourselves. We see the dissatisfaction that results from trading the glory of God for broken cisterns. We see the foolishness of sin. Yes, we see all of these things, but more than anything else, more than any of the consequences of sin that we see, we see that sin is an offense against a holy and righteous God and that it grieves his very heart. We see that our sin was so focused on ourselves that we didn't even consider the dishonoring of the name of God, the blaspheming of the Holy One in whose image we were created. And as we see the depths of our sin and foolishness, the response of the heart is mourning. Mourning over sin. In our culture, we mourn a lot of things. We mourn a lot of things. Many of us mourn the past year and the pain that it brought. We mourn over mask mandates and social distancing. We mourn over various protocols practiced by stores and churches. If you're like me, you mourn over the closing of Taco Bell in Kahului. Amen? or the delayed opening of Chick-fil-A next to Target. 
We mourn the rising prices of gas and other commodities. We mourn many things, but I have to ask, how much do you mourn over these things in comparison to mourning over your sin? Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, and this is truly paradoxical. Flourishing are those who mourn which I take to mean mourning over sin and its effects in the world. Like Psalm 119, 136 says this, the psalmist cries out, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. We mourn over sin in our own life, and then we mourn over sin as it just runs rampant in our world. How can it be then, I ask, and Jesus invites us to ask, how, these things seem opposite. How can I be flourishing and yet mourn? Later in Matthew 23, Jesus is going to say, woe to those who have joy now. Woe to those who are eating, drinking, and merry. He's going to pronounce a woe on the opposite. But here he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's how it can be. Those who mourn can be comforted. Now, if you're a Jew in the first century and you're hearing Jesus say, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted, that's a, that's a loaded word. Your mind's immediately going to go right back to Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. And then he's going to go on and talk about the servant that he would send that would bring the comfort. And he goes on to describe the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus this indescribable work. And he says, those who are comforting in that time, Isaiah 40, those who are found themselves under the discipline of God, under exile for sin and idolatry, he says, you will not be in mourning forever. Comfort's coming. Comfort. Comfort my people. And here Jesus says, blessed are those who are mourning because you're going to be comforted. Isaiah 43, verse 3 goes on, and it says that this servant, the Messiah, that he wouldn't break the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax. Isaiah 57, verse 15, check this out. He says, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. You hear that? God saying, I'm the holy one. I dwell in high and holy places and... Also, with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. And what does he do? To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is great news for us today, KBC, because if you're here, if you are in a state of mourning over your sin, if you're in a state of mourning over sins of a loved one or places in this world that are being wrecked by sin, he's saying you're in a good place of flourishing because you are going to be comforted. You remember John 14, Jesus says, if I go, I'm going to send another helper. That is the same Greek word, parakaleo, comforter. I'm going to send you my comfort. I will not leave you alone. Beloved, you have the comfort of the Holy Spirit to minister the fullness of this promise to you right now. I want to look at briefly two biblical examples of those who mourn in the scripture, and they are very different. They are very different. Not all mourning is equal mourning. I want to give you two biblical examples. Here's your first one, Peter. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 75, we read, if you remember, Jesus is going on trial, and Jesus tells Peter, you're going to deny me how many times? Three times before the rooster crows. On the third time, the rooster crowed right after Peter denied Jesus. And it says this, Matthew 26, 75. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And it says this, and he went out and wept bitterly. He went out and wept bitterly. He mourned over his sin. Now, we know Peter would ultimately meet Jesus again. He'd find forgiveness. He'd find restoration. He'd find grace. His sorrow was what we would call, what Paul would call, a godly sorrow that led to repentance and life. That's one case of mourning. I want to give you another. 
We also know that Peter would eventually become that rock that Jesus said he would be, didn't he? He would never deny his Savior again. He would suffer martyrdom rather than deny the faith. That's Peter. The second example is a few verses later, Matthew chapter 27. The second example is another famous apostle, and his mourning did not result in his flourishing. His mourning is what Paul would say is a worldly grief, grief that leads to death, literally in this case. In the same passage of Scripture, we read about Judas. You remember Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Judas later regretted his decision. Once he saw that Jesus was condemned to death, it says that Judas regretted the decision. He went back to the chief priests and elders. He tried to return the money he originally took from them, and they denied it. He threw it down, and it says he went out straightway and hung himself. Rather than turning to the other disciples, man, what do I do? I messed up. Rather than turning to these people that he had followed around with for three years, rather than recalling the promises that he surely heard of Jesus that all sin would be forgiven, rather than trusting that promise, rather than seeking mercy, Judas mourned over the consequences of his actions and he went out and hung himself. His worldly grief was still focused on himself at the end. And the result was death. Not all mourning is the same. And it doesn't all lead to the same place. We're going to talk about that in a little bit when we start to apply it. Number two, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. First, who are the meek? This is the next virtue that forms. Once you've been poor in spirit, you come to Jesus. I, I don't have nothing, that self-abasement. I, I have nothing on which to hang my merits, not my ethnicity, not my religious education, not my background, not my family. I come, like Paul says, whatever gain I had is loss. Once we come there, then we see our sin. We mourn over our sin. And somebody who mourns over their sin primarily and chiefly will be a person who is meek. It'll cultivate meekness in your heart. In other words, you won't be characterized any longer by selfish ambition or conceit. You won't be driven by this desire for self-aggrandizement or power or success or veneration or notoriety. You won't be driven by any of these things. You won't seek the glory of your own name. How much social media drives the seeking of glory of our own names. You will be meek humble, gentle. Many, many wars, much strife, upheaval in our world has been historically the direct result of men refusing to back down and simply just seeking their own greatness to exalt their own name. Consider your workplace. Where do you work at? What is your employment? What is your job? Consider your workplace. Much discord in workplaces, we could say, or churches, or really anywhere, is a direct result of people who constantly seek their own good, the glory of their own name, their own status. And this often plays out, here's how this plays out, in the, sin of the, in the sins of the tongue with gossip running rampant, where we seek to put others down or seek to shine the spotlight on others' mistakes so that we guard our own place or distract from our own shortcomings. Rather than being full of mercy to tactfully and strategically come alongside those who are struggling to make them better, we highlight what is our perceived, their weaknesses, our, perceived, our perception of their weaknesses. It's really a sense of seeking our own name. This can play out by people who are harsh, mean-spirited, quick to anger, irritable. If you find yourself given to these things, it can be a sign that you struggle with meekness. We'll flesh this out more in the application as well. But for now, 
Suffice it to say that fallen humanity, fallen men and women, we have sought to dominate the world through the exercise of power, of control, of manipulation, of deceit, technological advances, industrial might, political prowess. We have sought to exercise our authority over the world, but it will never happen. Jesus turns this on its head and he says, flourishing are the meek. And it is they and they only who will inherit the world. Time doesn't allow me this morning to revisit the covenantal expansion of the promise from Psalm 3711. For those of you who want to look this up more, this is actually super important to a lot of current modern events and ways that you see things. But the expansion of the covenant promises, Psalm 3711, is actually a quote. He says, the meek shall inherit the land. And here, he says, the meek shall inherit the earth. It's an expansion from the old covenant to the new covenant promises with massive implications. We've spoken on that a little bit before, so I don't have time to revisit it this morning, but perhaps again in the future, meditate on that for a bit. It'll blow your mind, all right? So uh, we'll move on. Blessed are the meek. And then number three, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is a righteousness that seeks the glory of God, and we could say, and rightness. It seeks justice for the oppressed. Justice and righteousness in the Old Testament and New are intrinsically linked. They're intrinsically linked. Uh, in, in, the, in the scriptures, we tend to think of, if I were to talk to you about justice, we tend to think of it as penalty rendered for a crime committed. Uh, the punishment fits the crime. We, we think of it in the negative sense, uh, but the biblical understanding includes the negative sense and also the positive sense. It's receiving what one is due, rendering to those what is due to them. And so, for instance, if you were to go to work for 40 hours a week this week and you go to your boss and you say, hey, and they say, I'm going to pay you on Friday, and, and you go to them and you say, hey, can I get paid on Friday? They say no. And maybe you'll give grace to them Okay, maybe something's up, you know, they're, they're pretty good. And, and, but they, they comes next Friday, can I, can I get paid today? No. Can I get paid today? And you get half of it. N- now what you're starting to sense is there's a sense of inequality here. Something is off. It is not right. It is not fair. Your, your, uh, your little justice meter internally is flaring now. It's blinking. And you are not being rendered what is due to you. And they are committing injustice and withholding what is yours. So it's not just a punishment for crime, it's also a rendering to those what they are due. And this is a, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for right standing with God, and for righteousness for those who are oppressed. One day, maybe we'll do a full study of this Old Testament thread. But for now, we'll just summarize it. Righteousness in the Bible isn't only concerned with our personal spiritual status before a holy God. It is intrinsically tied to external works of holiness toward areas of injustice and oppression. And that needs to be balanced at all times, lest you fall into a ditch on both sides. But in our culture, we kind of miss this metaphor, don't we? We don't know much about what it is to be hungry and thirsty. Some of you right now are probably like, I'm kind of feeling hunger right now. And that hunger pain is going to be satisfied in in a very short time. But most of us don't know what it's like to be continually malnourished, to be continually hungry, to be continually wondering, where is my next meal going to come from when there is no Costco, Safeway, or Foodland in sight? or 7-Eleven. We, we, don't, we don't know, but the culture that Jesus is speaking into was one that was constantly threatened by famine, one that was constantly threatened by drought. They literally had to work every day to ensure they had food for themselves and their families. And so when Jesus utters this word, flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be made full. They're going to be satisfied. The pain of hunger 
and thirst will drive people, it'll drive animals to do incredible feats to survive. In like manner, Jesus says, those who hunger for righteousness like that are flourishing. When you have a hunger for righteousness that is like that, you are truly in a state of blessedness. Now, how's this work with the others that came before it? When you are poor in spirit, you see your sin. You see that you need a Savior. You come to God. That then leads you to mourn over your sin and the sin of others, which then you start to become and be cultivated as a meek person. And then suddenly, you are in a place to see for the very first time more and more that which you lack but desperately long for, righteousness. If I am poor in spirit, if I mourn over my sin, the solution, the thing that will satisfy my soul, that will cause me to be full, that sense of fullness I long for is righteousness, is righteousness that I long for. And he says, those who hunger for it will be satisfied. There will be none who seek after the righteousness of the kingdom of God that are left hungry. We long by miracle, if we used other terminology like uh, John 3 terminology or Ephesians 2 terminology, we long, we long to live in accordance with our new nature. We've been born again, born anew with new desires, new capacities for joy, new longings of our heart, new spiritual taste buds that, that the things that we used to once enjoy, that's why most of us, if you, depending on when you became a Christian, maybe you look back and, and you used to love going out in the town, drinking, partying, cruising all night long, hanging out at the harbor, wherever it was, uh, listening to all kind music and being with all kinds of people. Now you look back on those times with shame and mourning. Oh, how foolish I was. Oh, if I only, this is what we, this is, we say this, don't we? If I only knew then what I knew now. We mourn over our sins of the past, and simultaneously we start to do things we never thought we would do. Believe it or not, I used to make fun of preachers. <laughs> mercilessly, <laughs> mercilessly would mock them. They teared up up here. I would mercilessly mock them. How many times have you guys seen me like, right? Get all choked up. So if you're making fun of me this morning, I'll have mercy on you, all right? Be careful, because you might be up somewhere preaching one day as well, all right? God has a funny sense of humor, a very funny sense of humor. The things we once despised and disdained, we now long and thirst for. We want God. One pastor made this observation that is important to keep in mind. You must hunger for righteousness more than you hunger for blessedness. Think about that. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. You have to hunger for righteousness more than you hunger for blessedness. And so they said, so aim for righteousness. I quote, aim for righteousness you'll get blessedness. Aim for blessedness, you'll get neither. An example of this would be the prodigal son, if you recall. The prodigal son tells his father, give me my inheritance. In essence, just die already. Give me, give me what's mine. He's full of a desire for blessedness. He seeks after blessedness, the, the satisfaction of all his desires, and he squanders his wealth. We can only imagine on what. But he seeks after all the longings of his heart, hoping to obtain that which will satisfy him. And where does he end up? Eating pigs, feeding pigs, and eating the food they eat. Don't aim for blessedness. Aim for righteousness, and you'll get blessedness as a consequence. You will be satisfied. Well, I, wanted, I went through all that real fast. I wanted to go through it fast because I wanted time for application. We could have taken a sermon on each of those, and I was very tempted to. Uh, but, but we're going to do some application of each of those and flush out a little bit of what that looks like in our lives. And then we'll transition from the sermon to the Lord's table. All right, let's open each of these up. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Job 42, verse 6. If you recall all the suffering of Job, God finally appears to Job out of a whirlwind, which I just, part of me is like, I think that'd be kind of cool to see God talk out of a whirlwind, but as you think about it, you know, actually that might be kind of terrifying, so may the Lord grant that I never have to see him out of a whirlwind, all right, but Job 42, here's what he says, verse 6, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He says, I've heard of your name, but now I've seen you with my eyes. And now seeing you with my eyes, he says, therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. That was a cultural sign of mourning. We have every reason to believe that he was very much legit in his expression of mourning. I take from this put together, there is a place for you to repent in dust and ashes over your sin. I don't mean that you are going to go get literal dust and ashes and throw it on yourself. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about there is time that you consider the sins that you have committed, if you've never done this, and that you mourn over them. You say, wait a minute, how do, how do I do that? A cold and callous heart makes it difficult to mourn over sin. A cold and callous, hard heart will not mourn over sin. Sometimes you see this with believers who repeatedly turn from the Holy Spirit. They feel the prick, they feel the prick, and they say, no, no, no. Eventually there's a hardness and a callousness over sin. How can you cultivate those, this state of mourning in your life, believer? Here's a few things. Number one, pray for it. You say, but my prayers don't feel like they go anywhere out of my brain. <laughs> Pray in faith. Pray in faith. Let that prayer be like a seed that you just sow on the ground, like, God, I don't know if this thing's going to grow, but I'm going to do it because you tell me to. Ask God to break your heart. Ask him to rescue you and to soften you. Sin has a numbing and hardening effect. So pray. Ask others to pray for you. Second thing, direct your mind intentionally to God's beauty and his attributes. Think of his goodness. Think of his kindness, his tenderness, his love, his patience, his compassion, all of these things. Think of his mercy. Reflect on his holiness, his beauty. Consider also his severity, his righteousness, his justice, that he will not let sin go unpunished. Consider often the beauty and the attributes of God. Third thing, consider the loveliness and grace of Christ. He came as a savior and a judge, and he offers judgment now to all who repent. Clear forgiven, paid in full. So consider the loveliness, the gentleness of Christ, your shepherd. Consider the penalty and consequence of your sin that was not paid by you. We sing about this. Behold the man upon a cross my sin upon his shoulder. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. One of the hardest things about sin is that often others pay the consequence, and when you have to see others suffer for your sin, it is painful. It can cut you. And as we look to Jesus, our catechism scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Consider the beauty of Christ upon the cross. Consider the penalty and the consequence of your sin paid in full. 
Consider the depths of the Father's love for you and the giving of His Son. Consider the blessedness of the promises of the gospel and the invitation He holds out to you that we learned about in our catechism this week. Can all my sins be forgiven? Yes, because Christ's death fully paid the penalty for our sins. God remembers our sins no more. Gone. And if he doesn't remember them anymore, beloved, those who mourn over their sin are eager not to dwell on or remember the sins of others either. You heard that? Of others. And when we're in this place of weakness, when we are brought there by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are equipped to better to weep over your sin and over the sin of others and to actually move toward them in a helpful way as the ambassador of Christ that you were destined to be. When we're in this place of mourning, banished are these initial thoughts. Man, we hear this. I thought this, all right? So if you've thought this, this has been me and we got we to gotta bring this to the cross. Banished are these thoughts of they bought it on themselves. They can get out of it on themsel- by themselves. They did it. Mm. Of course they did it. We all brought sin on ourselves. And God did not leave us to ourselves, did he? He didn't leave us to ourselves to rescue us. He moved toward us and rescues us. He enters our sorrows. He enters our suffering. He became sin who knew no sin. Beloved, my prayer is that we we have grown in this area, and I pray we continue to grow in being willing to enter the messiness of sin so that others can enter the righteousness of Christ, so that we can help lead them to flourishing for the glory of God. When we mourn over our sin after we have prayed and considered the Lord, and he softened us. People who mourn in sin are not quick to pridefully judge the moral failings of others. I say pridefully judge because, of course, we judge, right? Somebody stumbles, you can call that a stumble. You sin, you commit iniquity, wickedness, transgression, you can call that sin. You can call sin, sin. So I'm not saying we don't judge. Of course we judge. But there's a very difference between prideful judging that is quick to anger and shakes its head in contempt. There's a radical difference from that and those who mourn over their sin. And you, you see somebody else stumble and your heart isn't one of prideful disdain or disgust, but it's one of brokenheartedness. Oh, my dear brother, this is deep and dark. You don't have to walk here alone. I know the depths of this darkness. Let me come in with you. The Lord is kind and patient. There's worlds apart, differences in those two things. One comes from a proud spirit. The other comes from a heart that is mourning over sin. And when we feel that righteous anger well up within us, as is right response to sin, what we also find is it empties itself in the cross and overflows into mercy to all. We're going to get to blessed are those who are, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So that's mourning. There's some application for mourning. Let's go to meek. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. This is the same Greek word meek here, used in the fruit of the Spirit, the famous passage, the fruit of the Spirit. You recall that? Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is, say it with me if you know it, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, (gasps) gentleness. It's the same Greek word right there, gentleness. Blessed are the gentle, humble, meek. So seeing it in Galatians 5, this tells us this isn't something you can muster within yourself. You can't just, I'm going to be meek today. 
It's a fruit of the Spirit, which means it comes from outside of you. It comes by virtue of you walking in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. So how can we grow in meekness so that you can experience the flourishing that Jesus offers here? Here's number one. Don't quench the Spirit. That's, what, that's Paul's application. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not grieve the Spirit. How do you do that? In other words, known sin, walking in known sin. Sin deceives us. Sometimes we sin and we don't know it. But many times we sin and we do know it, don't we? Many times we give in to that temptation, we do know it, and we do it repeatedly. When we do that repeatedly, it quenches the spirit. It's picture a water hose. You turn on that water hose and the water's flowing smooth and fast and you're watering your garden or playing in the, with your kids, spraying them with the water hose. Or if you're like me, if my cat's nearby, guess what I'm going to spray? I'm going to spray that cat, right? So, right? And then she runs away all crazy, right? There's, there's water, but then something happens. It gets a kink. And you're watering, you're doing your thing, and then it stops flowing. Or it slows down, or it loses water pressure. There's a quenching of the water. In like manner, that's what sin does to the Spirit's vitality in your life. It quenches the Spirit. It puts a kink in the flow of God dwelling and you feeling the fullness and experiencing the life that comes with it. So, beloved, be quick to repent of sin in your life. Be quick to root it out. Be quick to confess it. Quick to flee it. Do not quench it. That's the negative. How can we do this positively? Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 4. This mindset dominated the entire ministry and movement of Jesus in the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas. Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So here's your homework. Ask God to search your heart for areas where you seek your own interest or significance. Pray this week, God, where are areas in my life that I seek my own interests or significance? You can flesh this out in your personal life. How do I interact with others in a way that, that shows I'm more interested in myself than in them? A lot of times this can happen in a personal relationship like this. Talk, 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 talk. I've spoken with people for two hours straight and they never asked a question about me. It was all about them. I did this, I grew up here. Da, 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 da. Now, if you're in like a counseling session or, or something like that, that that's very different. You're, you're there to talk, and, and we are there to listen and glad to listen. And in fact, we actually need to listen. That's, that's different. But, but in casual conversation, how does that look? How do I seek my own interests? Or, or maybe the, the, the one-upper, right? Oh, I, I deadlift 200 pounds. I'm so sore. 200 pounds, that's it? Yeah, that's nothing, right? Uh, that's it? The, the one-upper. Oh, I did that 50 times the other day. I'm sore too. All right, there's all kinds of ways we can seek our own interest in personal life and personal dialogue. What about in your marriage? Ooh, this is fun. Nothing reveals your self-interest like getting married to somebody else who's seeking their self-interest. Hey, how do you put the toilet paper on? Right? Forward, backwards. Do you leave the seat up? Seat down. Where does the toothpaste go back to? What, right? Where do these things happen? How, how do these things play out? There's nothing that will seek or reveal your self-interestedness like marriage. How does this play out in your marriage? Are you eager to serve or to be served? Do you seek to honor your spouse in words and deeds or to dishonor them? Make them the butt of the jokes all the time. What about with your children? How does your seeking of self-interest play out with your children? I just want to relax. I had a long day. Mom, dad, mom, dad, dad, mom. Not that that's wrong, but then when you respond in harshness, 
irritation, shortness. Then you have to ask, whose interest am I seeking? In the workplace, in the church, all these things can play out in a myriad of ways. One of the things we've seen, and I, and I mention this often because I hear people grumble about it often, uh, mask wearing. How do we seek our self-interest in mask wearing? Now this is, I admit, becoming less of something I hear about, but my concern is wondering, did hearts change or are circumstances changing? As laws get peeled back, we hear less grumbling about it. Praise God, I'm thankful for the laws being peeled back, all right? I don't like wearing masks like anybody else, all right? But my, my, my concern is what comes out of your heart when you have to put something on and do something you don't want to do? What comes out of that heart? Is it a heart of faith, hope, and love, and joy that is eager to serve others and consider others' interests? Or is it a heart that grumbles, complains, doubts, backbites, gets all irritated? You see? How do I seek the interests or significance of others? You ready for this one? With seating arrangements. I don't want to sit here. No, this is my seat. No, I, this, right? <laughs> well, I RSVP'd. I didn't RSVP. Wait, I, I want to sit here, there, wherever, everywhere. I want it. I want it. Well, the Lord beckons us. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourself. How would that approach your coming to church and worship? How about how you spend the holidays? Am I seeking mainly my comfort and relationships? Or am I taking the opportunity to continue to invite others into the sweetness of community that I experience, even if it changes the dynamic somewhat? Partiality and favoritism and exclusivity is certainly a form of self-interest. Friendships in the body can become so sweet so full, so exciting and good and treasured and cherished, and that's not a bad thing. But we have to understand the temptation that comes with that. If you read the book of Acts, God told the disciples to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, preach this gospel. And what did they do in Acts chapter 1 and 2? They were gathered together, in Jerusalem, unwilling to obey the command of God, in part, no doubt, because of the sweetness of community they had. They had to be driven apart, driven apart by persecution. Beloved, let's not wait for persecution. Let us actively, intentionally, diligently invite others into our circles of friends that they too may experience gospel community. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Lastly, how can we consider hungering and thirsting for righteousness? As we said, the Sermon on the Mount will just open you up, lay you bare, and invite you to find flourishing. So if you feel conviction, if you feel some grinding, I felt that grinding with you uh, in the past few weeks, right? If you feel that, that's the Spirit trying to conform you more into the image of Christ, which is what we all pray and long for. So don't hear condemnation, hear invitation to flourishing. How can we hunger and thirst for righteousness? and experience this flourishing associated with it. Number one, briefly, if you're hungry and thirsty, what do you do? You go look for it, right? You go get it. You're not going to sit back, I'm hungry. Sometimes children do that. And what do I tell them? Go get something. Go eat. <laughs> there's a fridge right there. You can go get that, <laughs> right? Go get it. Pursue it. When you're hungry and thirsty, that's what you do. You pursue food. When you're hungry and thirsty for righteousness, beloved, pursue it with diligence and efforts and eagerness. Pursue after it. Don't be passive in pursuing righteousness. I'm just going to sit here and hope righteousness comes to me. Pursue after it. 
we put a lot of needs out through our newsletter. We put it out through Facebook. We'll, we'll send them out in various forms of announcements up here. And these are all offering you opportunities and invitations to pursue righteousness. And you might hear those things and say, I don't, I don't feel like I'm gifted in these areas. I want to pursue something else. And then also hear me say, then come pursue it with us and let's brainstorm how you can pursue it. Let's do it. Pursue it with diligence, with singularity of mind, and get this. Here's really the hard part, I think, for most people as they pursue righteousness. Pursue it with self-denying actions. We move from this area of romanticizing ministry and pursuit of righteousness to being motivated to pursue it. Then we pursue it, and we realize it's harder than we thought, and then we get disenchanted. disenchanted with it, and and then eventually we fall away from it. It's a cycle. I can feel it play out in my heart. I see it play out in those who try to engage, and we forget that as we pursue righteousness, there are forces acting on us, actively opposed to us from outside of us and from within us. We realize we are actually weaker than I thought I was. I need more grace than I could have ever imagined to continue and pursue. And Jesus invites us, blessed, flourishing, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This sermon will end. And do you know what the final beatitude is? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and you're going to pursue it, and you're going to be satisfied, and you're going to be persecuted. You're going to feel opposition. And Jesus lived this out more than anybody else, did he not? He embodied this as he sought righteousness wholeheartedly and was killed for it. Beloved, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. I pray you will pursue it this morning, and this we will do as we transition to the Lord's table. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the invitation given here to mourn over sin and to find forgiveness in Christ. Thank you for outlining for us, Father, what it is and what comes to those who are meek. We will inherit the earth. And Father, grant that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness, that as we taste from your cup, as we eat your bread, that it would be a foreshadowing of that which is to come, a day when we are not left wanting more, but are full to the brim. We ask that you do this in us, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Our response this morning will be the Lord's table. And I pray you will partake joyfully, worthily, and we'll transition to that in a moment. Thank you, and God bless.